Thank you very much, Dieter. Well, it's always a pleasure to be here, so thank you very much to the organisers for inviting me. Um, I should perhaps start off by saying that uh, I'm going to be, in a sense, trying to persuade you all that archives are good places to go, but I can't promise that all of them are as beautiful as this one. Um, I think this is quite possibly the most beautiful archive in the world, or certainly it's up in the top ten. So, uh, sadly, some of them are rather boring grey office blocks. And in fact, the Commission archives themselves in Brussels are uh, down. Uh, down well, no, actually, the Commission ones are now in a decent building, but the Council ones are, are down at a floor so low that even the, the, the lifts, some of the lifts don't even get that far down. So, you have to know which lift to use. Um, anyway, um, as I said, as Dieter said, I've, I'm somebody who's been working on the history of the <coughs> European community, as I still tend to talk about it, largely because that's the period I focus on, or the EU, um, for most of my professional career, with a sideline, uh, but quite an extensive sideline, on the history of Britain's relations with uh, Britain. And so what I thought I'd do today um, was basically just sort of talk about the type of resources that you might be able to find in the archives. I'm going to focus particularly in the sort of the, the slightly planned part of my intervention on the, the Britain and Europe story, but as I have also uh, written quite a lot about the wider European story, if those of you, if there are questions that relate to how one might go about looking at sort of France and Europe or Spain and Europe or whatever, I'm happy to try my hand at uh, answering questions there as well. But I suppose the first starting point is to say simply that we, whatever the uncertain future of the Britain and Europe um, relationship, it does now have a very long past, and much of that past falls into the territory on which archives are open. So the archival landscape, sort of the archival resources available to anybody interested in the Britain and Europe uh, question is very, is very, very extensive, very varied, and I'm going to try and give you a small taste of it um, uh, in, in the next few minutes. Um, what I want to start off by doing is talking about some of the most interesting sources out there and the sort of archives what you might think of turning to if you were interested in working on the community and Britain and the community's past. I'm then going to do, in, my, in the last bit of my talk, I'm going to turn to some of the topics which I think still need to be investigated and for which archival evidence is now available. Uh, it's far from an exhaustive list, but it's just the, the, the things that most occurred to me as being ripe for archival study. Um, now, the first, I think the first place to start archival research on Britain and Europe are the UK National Archives themselves in, in Kew, just outside London. Uh, and they are in many ways still, they, don't, they can't quite match the beauty of this place, but although Kew is quite nice, uh, but uh, they are still in many ways the sort of Rolls-Royce of archives in terms of user-friendliness. There is a huge amount of material there. They are very easy to use. There is an extremely good online catalogue. You can do a lot of, if you have, once you have a reader's card, you can order the papers up in advance so there is stuff waiting for you. Uh, they're a very nice environment to work 
in. Um, it's all pretty self-evident. It's interestingly, when you read the acknowledgements of most history books, you will see a little note where people thank archivists. I never thank the archivists of the National Archive, not because I'm ungracious, but because I didn't actually ever talk to them. Because it's so easy that it's kind of entirely self-service. You go in and you kind of help yourself. And whereas in the French or in the German archives, you do actually have to go and talk to an archivist who will guide you through the collection. In the National Archives, you by and large turn up and nobody knows you're there except for the machine where you swipe your card. Uh, so it's very anonymous, but uh, at the same time, it is extremely useful. It's also the case that the, the majority of Britain's period of membership of the community and the years in which it was flirting with the community and trying to get in coincide with what I think will become to be seen historically as possibly the best period ever for government and official documents. It hits a particular sweet spot between the spread of technology in the form of the typewriter and the photocopier which meant that the circulation of printed text became very easy. So you don't have to slog through lots of very horribly handwritten notes in the way that you would if you were working on the histories of the 1920s, let alone the 19th and 18th century. So everything's printed, very easy to read. But at the same time, you haven't yet got, until you get to the very last years of this century, the sort of proliferation of email and other things, which I suspect means that the written record, because the, the, the rules on keeping emails were very hazy, I think a lot of that is going to vanish from the archive. Now, sure, there is stuff that is still discussed in the corridor, there is still things that are said on the telephone that you don't have, but it does strike me that that period from about 1960 through to about 1990 is going to be regarded as the period when the governmental archives of Western countries were probably their absolute apogee in terms of how much they contained, and the period before and the period afterwards are unlikely to be uh, nearly so good. So it is a fantastically rich collection which you can do any amount of uh, work with and it's a very easy one to use. You can use your digital camera, you can photograph anything, there are very few limits. In terms of what's there, well it is the, they are the papers of virtually every single government ministry. Um, there is a certain amount of weeding that goes on but by and large most of the papers are released and released fairly promptly. It used to be the case that there was a uniform 30-year rule, so everything used to come out after 30, 30 years. So, in other words, the papers that we would be able to, you'd be able to find in the in the, the National Archives today would be the papers uh, from uh, from 1987. Uh, the British have actually slightly complicated matters because they've started moving away from that, and they've started rather confusingly moving away from that in two directions. Officially, the aspiration is to move to a 20-year rule, so they are actually trying to accelerate the release of papers, and meant, they're meant to be gradually getting there. But because this move to a 20-year rule has coincided with a period of austerity, when there have been cutbacks in the archival service, etc., what has actually happened is that some papers come out more quickly than they used to, but others actually come out more slowly. So you're getting this increasing sort of diversification between some papers which are appearing already for the late 80s and even into the early 90s and other papers that ought to have been out from the early 80s that haven't yet made it. So you're getting a kind of more American spread of some rapid release and some uh, rather slower release. 
There's also a procedure which it is worth trying to experiment with for freedom of information um, requests, which does work. It's a bit laborious. It's, um, it, it, you need to know what you're doing and you need to take advice before you try and do it. But I do know quite a lot of historians who've got some really rather high quality materials through putting in FOIA requests. And we're still kind of learning how to do it, but it does mean that you can, if you know what you're after, you can strategically get stuff from the 1990s, say, that you wouldn't normally uh, be able to see in the general release for quite some time. But in addition to the National Archives, which, as I say, are a fabulous resource, and there are quite a lot of historians who never get out of this, sort of never get beyond the National Archives. They will write, PhD students will write their whole doctorates from there, etc. And in a sense, bully to them, but I sometimes think that makes you a bit narrow. Uh, there is also a huge array of private papers that are relevant to the Britain and Europe story. The most obvious ones are clearly those of the multiple British leaders who have left their papers normally to Oxbridge Colleges or to the Bodleian Library or to Churchill College, Cambridge. So we have the papers from Millen, Wilson, Callaghan, Roy Jenkins, etc. So there's a whole sort of panoply of private papers that are available, many of which are very rich. There's also uh, the quite decent party archives. The general rule there is party archives tend to be most interesting when the party is out of government. When it's in government, all of the interesting discussions will go to the National Archive. But when they're in opposition, the National Archive isn't interested, so the best papers remain in the party archives. But if you're trying to find out what the sort of government in waiting, as it were, uh, is doing and thinking about Britain and Europe, then uh, the party archives can be quite interesting, as well as sort of taking the, getting the feel of what's coming through from, from the constituency level, uh, what the local agents are saying, etc. Um, just on the leaders' papers, I should have added that most of them are still in the form of paper collections that have been left to various institutions like the Bodleian. The one exception to this rule are Mrs Thatcher's papers that are now increasingly digitised and available online through the Margaret Thatcher Foundation. The Thatcher Foundation has also been very enterprising in going and finding papers from elsewhere about Mrs Thatcher. So, the, uh, so they have got lots of American papers, but also bits and pieces from various European archives. Uh, so you can often see not just the British record of Mrs. Thatcher's talk with Ronald Reagan, but the American papers, the American version as well. And that enables you to have a, a, a nicely two-sided thing. But there's also um, a series of once-off collections that are very important for the uh, Britain and Europe story. So, for instance, all of the papers relating to the 1975 uh, referendum are at the LSE. Um, and there's a collection of the pamphlets, the posters, of a lot of the uh, materials that were generated in the process of the 1975 election. And actually, they've tried to, they're trying to flank it with a parallel collection now on the 2016 referendum. So if somebody wanted to do a sort of comparison between the two, uh, there's a real chance to do so. But you've obviously got multiple other possibilities, business records, CBI records, uh, trade union, sort of TUC records, newspaper archives, etc., etc. The list uh, is potentially mass massive. But I think if you were really being serious about doing the history of Britain and Europe, you wouldn't want to just look at the British records, which fascinating and excellent though many of them are. And I think there are a series of reasons why it's very profitable to try and look at the other side of the story too and to do some 
delving into the archives available on this side of the channel as well. Um, part of it is, of course, a, an attempt to assess whether the British position was as reasonable or as logical as it tends to look when you read government papers. So government papers are normally written off by pretty clever civil servants who make a very good case. And you do find, if you're using only British sources, that you get sucked into the internal logic of it. And it seems all very neat and tidy and rational and logical. And it's only really when you go and read the French papers or the Belgian papers or the, the Commission papers or whatever that you begin to realise that actually the starting premise of the British is wrong or muddle-headed or ill-informed and therefore this totally logical case is actually much less compelling uh, than it looks. Uh, and so you really do need to look at the other side of the picture in order to properly assess British policy. You also get, you also can spot those moments where the British just totally got the wrong end of the stick and to the extent that the Britain and Europe relationship has been at times a dialogue of the deaf, you only really get that facet if you start exploring some of the continental archives as well. And then it's also the case that if you go, it's only through the papers of the of the particular Brussels institutions that you began to realise another facet of the Britain and Europe story, which is the role of Brits on the other side, as it were, the role of those British civil servants who were working for the community institutions, etc. And that's something that I'm becoming increasingly fascinated in. As Dita mentioned, I've just written a, a book about Jenkins as president of the European Commission, but, and uh, I'm also involved in this Commission History Project. And it is quite interesting to trace the impact and the role and the influence of uh, the many Brits who have worked uh, in the various EU institutions in the course of uh, Britain's 40 plus years as community member. Uh, so I think all of that can be captured uh, uh, very well. And then I think, I suppose, the final link is that actually, if you look at other countries, the thing about the European Community, European Union, is a lot of the paper circulates everywhere. So even if one country does not want to release that information, another country tends to be the ideal place to break that other countries' compulsion. So, so you can find that even if the British have lost the minutes of such and such a meeting, you go to the Irish archives and the Irish will have the minutes. And so you can, you can kind of make up for the holes in the archival record by using, using neighbouring countries. Now, how do you go about, so what are the options on, on this side of the channel? Uh, the first, I suppose, are the community union archives, whether here or in Brussels. Um, here you have the advantages of the sunshine and the beauty. Uh, Brussels is perhaps slightly uh, cheaper and easier to get to by Eurostar at least. Um, so in a sense you, you pays your money and you makes your choice in terms of which one you go for. I tend to use both. Um, but they are increasingly good, the collections both here and in Brussels. I, when I first started using the Commission archives in particular in the 1960s, it must be said that it was a slightly frustrating experience. <coughs> Um, they are, there's a lot of stuff from that era, but the collections were very patchy. Uh, a, lot, a huge amount was clearly not written down. There were massive gaps, and the file keeping was uh, sporadic, would be, I think, the uh, politest term I could use about it. Um, it did get a lot better, I think, partly, as Dieter said, under the influence of the British civil servants themselves. And I'm very struck now, particularly doing this Commission History Project for the 1980s, how the switch from uh, Emile Noel as Secretary General of the Commission to David Williamson makes an absolutely dramatic difference to the quality of the minutes that are kept for each meeting of the Commission. 
Uh, under Noel, they were Delphic, um, to say the least. Under Williamson, you can actually work out pretty much what everybody's position was and what the argument was. It's not sort of, not everything is recorded, but you pretty much get a sense of the alignment within the Commission on most of the key decisions. And so if you're trying to work out the po internal politics of the Commission, the period from 86 onwards uh, is a lot, lot better. But it's not just that, that at that level that the Commission papers improve. I think throughout the 1980s and going into the 1990s, they get better and better. Again, though, the official papers, uh, and this is true particularly here, uh, need to be seen in conjunction with the very, very wide array of private uh, paper collections. And, and this is something that both Dieter and his predecessor have been extremely enterprising in going looking for. Um, you've got the papers here of a huge series of people who've held interesting and irresponsible posts in the various European institutions and have large collections of paper. Now, the quality obviously varies um, and they're not as comprehensive perhaps as the kind of official institutional archives, but sometimes the quality can be very, very good. And the great advantage is that they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily tied with exactly the same 30 years rule. And so some of the private collections uh, will go right up into the sort of much more recent period. So, for instance, I was looking at the, the catalogue of Graham Avery's papers, this stuff on his role in the EU enlargement negotiations with, uh, with what became the 2004 members uh, from the late 1990s that are already available, already open. Now, if you're going to go look at the main Commission collection, you're going to have to wait another 10 years or so before that material becomes available. But if you go through the private collection, you, 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 you get into that much earlier. You've also got some fascinating things, and this is where the UAC's collection fits in. You've got some fascinating things from academic practitioners, and that's another very distinctive feature of these archives in particular. You've got collections from people like Keith Middlemass, you've got Walter uh, Lipkins, various others who have studied the EU community academically who have left large amounts of paper. Uh, again, I haven't been through the detail, uh, through the collections in detail, but they look very promising from their, from their index entry at least. And then final thing that you have here, in abundance, which again, you might not immediately thinking, think of using, is huge numbers of interviews, many with people who are now dead. Uh, and so there are multiple collections. Many of this is, most of these are available online. You can go through and you can get interviews with various sort of Lord Cofield, uh, um, various others of Tugendhat, various other former British commissioners, some of whom are no longer with us and therefore can't any longer be interviewed, but they're being interviewed there. Uh, but there's a huge array of things done for both these. We're now on the third volume of the Commission History volumes, which are driven partly by interviews. So there were the previous two interview volumes, their interviews are available here, but there were various other projects which also had an interview dimension to them. So there's a lot of former Eurocrats you can pontificating and they, they, some of it is really very rich it's quite slow to digest because they're conversations but you can get a lot of details and a lot of um, sort of nice nuggets that you might not find anywhere else there's also of course though the possibility of doing Syria using the national archives in multiple other member states and let me just point to one or two of the best the French system despite the sort of widespread belief that French archives are difficult to use 
is actually much more open than most people think. It's very decentralized, so it's, there is not the equivalent of the national model that is the Archive Nationale, but the Archive Nationale does not have everything in there. And so quite a lot of ministries, like the Quai have their own separate archives. So it's a somewhat more difficult archival universe to navigate. But there is some extremely good stuff, including now quite a lot of the presidential papers. There's still a problem with the de Gaulle papers, although some of them are slowly emerging. But the Pompidou papers, the Giscard papers, and increasingly the Mitterrand papers are open. So if people have French enough to use them, you can find out quite a lot right up until the early 1990s. Um, the German system is also both fairly decentralized, but again, increasingly available. And for those of you who do read German, I would strongly recommend the, the, the volumes of German foreign policy documents, which are probably in your university library, and which are excellent. They're the best document series that we have on on recent uh, governmental decision-making. And because of the importance and centrality of European policy to German government policy, there's a huge amount in them on Europe. And that collection now goes right up into the mid-1980s. So you can get a lot of um, late Schmidt and early Kohl discussions about, about European reform, etc. And it's a really first-rate uh, first collection. My German's lousy, but they're beautifully organized volumes where the, the t it, has the, it has a table of contents to die for, which summarizes each, con each document. And so even with my slow German reading, you can very quickly zero in on the 10, 15 documents that mean most to you. And you can then sort of slog through dictionary in hand, translating every other word, and still get a huge amount out of them. But if you're not a linguist, well, don't forget Ireland. Um, the Irish archives are really rather good. There's a lot of material there. I haven't used them yet myself, but I'm told by others that they're very good, and I'm planning a trip to Dublin in the near future to precisely to use them. And, of course, because they're in on the, the European discussions, it gives you a very useful, different viewpoint. They're not captured by Whitehall groupthink, but they are keeping decent records of what's going on in Brussels. So that's another possibility. And the US. Um, the US have always watched what goes on in Brussels very carefully, and in some ways I've always found that some of the European, um, so many of the European uh, officials themselves somehow felt less, less constrained when talking to the Americans, and so would actually say things to the Americans that they probably would not say to each other. And so you sometimes get these sort of, some of this is letting off steam, but you get these very sort of catchy quotes that you can pick up in the American archives of sort of European, sort of French bitching about the Germans or whatever, but, but you get some really, some really good stuff in there. There's also online the Archive of European Integration at Pittsburgh has a fantastic collection of European documents, all of which have been digitised. It begins to run out of steam in the 1990s, but until the 1980s, so for the 1970s and the 1980s, there's some fantastic stuff there. Um, and it is all digitized and it's all available and you can, you can sort of access it without leaving your computer, which is very, very useful. I think increasingly we also have to think, though, about escaping governmental level archives. And I think this is going to be where the frontier of new research is. Sort of the, a lot of the study, traditional study of 
the European communities has been done, whether by political scientists or by lawyers or by historians, has been looking at government-level activities. It does strike me that what we need to do in the decades ahead is push increasingly to do a sort of bottom-up view of Europe as well as a top-down. And that, of course, just vastly increased the range of possibilities. We need sort of, whether you're looking at farm or farmers' organisations, whether you're looking at businesses, whether you're looking at uh, universities, whether you're looking at students who've been on Erasmus schemes, we need more and more histories of European integration written from those who lived it as Europeans rather than written from the point of view and perspective of the, the policy makers who met in Brussels or in the various national capitals. And I think that's going to be where the frontier of historical research is, and I suspect the same is probably happening in other disciplines as well, although in, in a sense I'd be interested in the Q&A to, 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 to hear from you to see whether my estimation is correct. So finally, just to finish before going on to the Q&A, what are the particular topics in the Britain and Europe field that I think leap out at me uh, as, being, as needing work? Well, the first decade to look at in the Britain and Europe story, which I think still has massive gaps in it, uh, is the 1970s. There is the Stephen Wall official history, which goes up to 1975, so it does do half of the decade. But while there's a lot there, there's also a lot that isn't in there. Um, and, and I think Stephen is, is a bit nervous about putting forward an interpretative line. It's, uh, he's a very cool sort of, he, is a, he was a civil servant and in some ways he remains a civil servant who's keen to be seen as non-partisan. And I find that book slightly frustrating because he tells you what happens, but he doesn't actually put any form of kind of interpretative analysis on it. So even when he's got the basic information, I think there's still scope for people to go in and say, why is this happening and why does this matter and why is this important or unimportant? So his book is there. There are a few historians. There's a big book about to come up by, by a chap called Rob Saunders at Queen Mary on the 75 referendum, which I think is going to be. He was very frustrated when the referendum happened last year, not this year, because when it was originally talked about, it was going to be 2017, and he was planning to publish in, during the referendum campaign. And then Cameron went and held it a year early, and his plans were frustrated. Uh, but uh, perhaps it would be a better book for having uh, waited that little bit longer. Uh, but, and there are a series of other historians who are doing good work on the 70s, but we still have huge gaps. Um, there is some work now being done on the renegotiation and the referendum, as I say, but we don't know very much about the Wilson and Callaghan governments in Europe. We know about the EMS part of the story, but we don't really know a lot else about the story. We still don't have a comprehensive account moving into the 1980s of the British budgetary round. Uh, I've written a certain amount about it uh, covering the first period when, when Jenkins was in Brussels from my sort of commission president perspective. But Jenkins leaves in 19, at the end of 1980 and the row, of course, will rumble on until 1984. So there's nothing about the, the last four years of the, of the row, which, which clearly matter enormously. Um, you've got the British role in the whole sort of 1985 relaunch of the European integration story. Now, various people, John Gillingham and others, have put forward views as to whether Mrs Thatcher was responsible about this, but we still don't have really detailed resource, uh, really detailed historical research on that, uh, and it's a massive gap. Those papers are open. You can go in and read 
uh, try and work out whether the Single European Act really was Mrs Thatcher's baby, as Gillingham claims. I have my doubts. Um, but, uh, but you can go in and sort of test that, test that claim. Um, you've also got, um, obviously, the whole of the sort of Mrs. Thatcher and the, the end of Mrs. Thatcher in Europe story in the, in the late 1980s that is beginning to become increasingly available. Not all of the papers are yet out, although, interestingly, the Margaret Thatcher Foundation papers do now go up to her fall and indeed beyond, so you can begin to get her side of the story, even if you can't get the rest of the British government for, or in its entirety yet. Um, there's some fascinating work be done on the respect on the various changes of party positions. So sort of the switch of the Conservative Party from the Party of Europe to the Party of Europhobia um, is something that stretches clearly over the whole of the 1980s into the 1990s and into this century. Now, again, not all of it is going to be archivally accessible, but you've got archival access to quite a lot of the first part of that story, and I think that shift needs to be studied. Ditto the swing of the Labour Party in the other direction, which again begins in the early 1980s, from sort of 83 onwards. And so that story can be now increasingly delved into archivally. So, and just one further thought, so the, the, uh, the beginnings of the early role of the European dimension of the Northern Ireland peace process is something we know very little about. It's become a cliche now in the Brexit debate that this will disrupt the peace process and that this will be a disaster. But how the, the idea of integration and the peace process came to be seen in conjunction in the first instance is something that hardly anybody has done any serious work on, as far as I'm aware. And yet, again, the archival record of the first part of the story should become increasingly available. So in other words, there's a huge amount of very potentially rich topics uh, that could, uh, could be looked at. But I'm, so those are just my ideas of what I think I would like to see available. And I don't want this just to become me sort of pontificating. So I'm inclined to sort of stop there and open up and say, please do sort of fire questions about not just the British and Britain and Europe story, but the whole how one goes about using archives as a way into the wider history of the EU and of Britain and Europe in particular. Thank you. Thank you, Piers, for this overview. Um, I guess that there will be questions from participants. Yeah, here's the first one. And Piers, you mentioned that for you the golden period of archival collections is between the 1920s and the 1990s. Um, you didn't say so, but I suspect that one of the reasons that you see a sort of uh, Break after the 1990s could be things such as email or text messages. So I was wondering whether you could make a few more comments on how you see uh, or what kind of change of method uh, of working you see caused by these modern uh, means of communication. Yeah. Um, well, so in a sense, this is this is something I'm speculating about still because, of course, I haven't seen the archives, or at least with the exception of some of the commission material, which I am now beginning to see from the beginning of the the very late 1990s and the beginning of the 21st century. So, in a way, I'm I'm anticipating a problem. I think there are several things happening. The first of all, first the, the first problem is email, which in its early days was not very well policed. And so I think it is now the case that any government uh, email 
uh, is now preserved in the same way that the same way that official correspondence would have been and letters and telegrams in previous eras would have been kept. But there was unfortunately quite a long period when email existed as a sort of, in a grey area, the rules had not yet been updated. Um, and as a result, uh, a huge amount of that email was destroyed. Um, this goes a long way back, I am told by American experts, by colleagues who work on, on modern American politics, that one of the issues, for instance, in the uh, Iran-Contra scandal during the Reagan presidency, one of the reasons why it became so difficult to prove Ollie North's guilt in the matter was that this was an era where the US, being somewhat ahead in IT terms, had already begun to use email, and yet North was able to delete all of the relevant emails in a way that he wouldn't have been able without committing a federal offence to have burnt the paper. Uh, he couldn't get rid of the paper, but most of the incriminating stuff was actually electronic, and he was therefore just able to wipe the, wipe the discs. Uh, so there was a period, I suspect, where that was a problem. The second thing which I think changes um, is I think we move to a more informal style of government, uh, generally, as you sometimes get references to sofa government or whatever, but I do, think, I do think as you move into the 1990s and the early years of the 21st century, I just suspect a lot less was written down. There's always been levels of decision-making that have not been written down, in a sense that's as old as decision-making. Uh, and everybody, will, uh, everybody here would have been in minutes when, would have been in, in, in meetings where the chair has sort of turned to whoever's keeping notes and saying, don't minute that. So that's a kind of standard part of any record. But it does strike me that government has moved rather further in that direction recently than was the case up until probably the 1990s. In Britain, there's also a particular thing that happens in the 1990s about the responsibility of civil servants. And in that respect, the so-called Scott Affair, uh, which was over the Iran, the super gun that had been supposedly sold to uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, that became quite important because the Scott Report, for the first time, uh, actually placed um, responsibility on the heads of those civil servants who had recommended the policy. And that had previously never been done. So the civil servants were always able to hide behind the ministers in previous scandals. This time, for the first time, the finger of blame was pointed at individual civil servants. And I am told by people who work in Whitehall, but there may be others here who are better qualified than I am to, 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 to talk about this, but I'm told by friends who work in Whitehall that that produced a very profound change in the record-keeping culture. And what would happen is not that nothing would be written down, but that what would not be written down was any precise policy recommendation. And so what you would get is that civil servants would draw up a, a document that said there is policy option A, policy option B, and policy option C, and orally they would brief the minister on which one they recommended, but they would not write down which one they had recommended so that the finger of blame could not be pointed at them if something went wrong. Now, I don't know how widespread with that. That's simply what I'm told by friends who, rather than going into academia, went into government. But, uh, but it does sound as if that culture, if it does exist and is accurate, is likely to seriously reduce the quality of the, of the, of the paper trail that is available. Uh, so I do, think we, I do think things have got worse, but at the moment I don't know, I haven't seen. And it must be said that the Commission papers I've seen for the late 1990s are not bad. 
uh, I don't see a marked deterioration there yet. So maybe, um, maybe I'm over being over dramatic about the change. Other questions? Archive here versus the archives in Brussels. Um, I've worked in Brussels, but I, I'm just wondering if there's unique elements that are in Brussels that are not here, or vice versa. It sounds like there are the private collections here that would not be there. But of the documents that are in Brussels, are they all, could you just come here and get everything that you get in Brussels, or do you really need to go to well, Dieter might be better placed than I am to. So I think the situation has changed a lot. There was a long period where the pipeline from Brussels to here was not very effective. And so a lot of my early research had to be done in Brussels, not just because it was more convenient from London, but because stuff wasn't arriving here. But I think, as Dieter will be able to confirm, the situation has changed quite a lot. Well, in fact, it, it really varies from institution to institution how well they organized uh, what uh, well-established uh, archive service they have and what kind of backlog they faced when they started archiving. Now I outlined in a few words uh, the, the development of an archival system at the Commission which was uh, only happening in the late 70s, early 80s, which means 30 years after the, the organization was already created uh, by the Schumann plan. And so what happened with the Commission was when they seriously uh, started going uh, into serious archival work in the 80s, uh, all of a sudden they were facing a huge backlog that was sitting in the various offices, uh, registry rooms, protocol rooms, basements, and um, obviously the moment that the offices found out that there is now an archive service, they started to massively transfer their papers to the archives. So the archives was, faced, uh, was facing these huge transfers into the, that central service, which they could not cope with. Um, so what happened was that they took a warehouse outside of uh, Brussels, uh, where they kind of, the famous Saventen uh, warehouse, where they created an intermediate archive. So intermediate archive means stuff is, that is being treated in view of publishing it, opening it to the public. Um, and this is still ongoing now. Uh, we're talking about kilometers and kilometers of files that are still pending to be opened and that also fall into the 30 years period, which means that, that it should be opened. Um, so this was one thing. The other thing was that uh, the Florence was initially created by uh, political leaders, <coughs> people like uh, Dickens and, uh, and Christopher Audlin, who might have had a view as user, so as a historian, you, you have maybe a view on, on, on how to use archives, but you don't have the view on how to create these archives in terms of the whole process from registry through an intermediate archive, the screening, uh, the, uh, uh, the disposal of archives, the, the description, uh, the declassification, uh, legal considerations and, and so forth, until really after 30 years you would publish it and open it to the public. So that's a long and, and very heavy process. And so what happened is that the, the people that were actually confronted doing this work, uh, they could not cope with it. So you had maybe an expectation on the one side, yes, let's open our archives, but then in practical terms, what does that mean? And what does it imply? How long does it take? And uh, what kind of measures do we have to take? So that uh, in the end, uh, the, the transfer to Florence, Florence was initially felt to be more as a, as a kind of a documentation center. You mentioned Pittsburgh. 
um, uh, the, the University of Pittsburgh that has kind of the, all the official documents uh, from, uh, from the, the inherited from the former EU delegation in, uh, in Washington. Um, a collection. So I think Florence was initially meant to receive well the the plenary meetings, the minutes from the, the Parliament uh, plenary, maybe the committee uh, meetings, the official journal, uh, the uh, the minutes from the commission meetings, maybe some additional material, but uh, more on a, on a very flat basis. And only when they figured out that archiving means dis uh, disclosing everything from all the various directors general, from the cabinets, from the president, vice presidents and forth. So the, a very holistic approach towards archiving, which is the normal approach, which uh, in fact in the case of the National Archive, you get it all, everything. Uh, then uh, they were, I think they were kind of holding back and then thinking, okay, how can we do this? So they started to transfer to Florence first, what I would uh, say, uh, the dead case, which is the coaxial community because that was a closed era already. We're talking about uh, the, the end of the, uh, the treaty in 2001. So basically we have almost complete the story of the Cold Steel community, but the EEC, the very successful common market material, that's really a story that we only have to actually hear. And where what we have uh, quite complete are, is the technical part, which means uh, the DGs, but what we have very, very little is the political part. All the cabinet papers, the presidential papers and so forth, the official archives. They are still in Brussels. They are being opened in Brussels, so you can access them in Brussels, but they're still not being transferred here. Now, for the other institutions, it, uh, they, everybody's got their own uh, difficulties. Uh, for example, if we take the parliament, we have just received uh, the first presidential papers um, from Simone Weil and uh, Pierre Dunkert. So we're in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, they don't have an administrative archive from the times before because the administration was so slim that it was not even considered to be of importance in, in archival terms. So there's very little before 79 uh, for the parliament. The council also was considered just a little secretariat for council meetings. It only exploded in terms of uh, importance in the 70s when, when the European Council came up. Um, so it's, it's a late comer and also quite small. So uh, every institution has got their sensibilities, their own uh, archival tradition. Uh, they're all facing this huge backlog uh, with a very small set of stuff. So it's something that's happening only now, basically in the past years, that uh, with the modernization, with the start of digitization, uh, that in fact uh, the, the, the institutions just keep a digital copy, which is basically a much, a much easier tool for them to access the material than keeping all the papers around, that they start uh, transferring massively to, to Florence. Also some practical considerations in, in terms of, for example, as, a, uh, as an example, the Parliament archives. Uh, they're moving, so they have to liberate space. And the same now for the Commission, who has uh, been moving two or three times in the past 10, 15 years, the archives, so they just want to get rid of paper. So that obviously helps us. Florence, so we're getting better, we'll have more and more. Uh, but it's true, uh, if you want to have the complete picture, particularly on the very top, uh, you still have to go to Brussels and uh, Luxembourg in the case of the to complete your research. Just, just a Yeah. Delegation was yeah. there. Okay. 
this, this is the, the Histcom project, so, so we're, we're, which goes, it goes up to two, the end of 2000. It was, it, They're pretty much sending us the whole files, okay, um, but they're but I'm not allowed to use all of them. But but so just just to add to what Dee said, so I think it's, I think one of the things to get across is that, is that although the process of setting up the commission archives began in the late seven late seventies under the initiative of Christopher Audland, it took a long time for uh, the kind of spread of a culture. Uh, where papers were systematically kept and made available. Um, so I started getting into this game in the uh, early to mid 1990s, in the early 1990s when doing my doctorate. Um, and it was still the case that um, the flow of, so just the attitude of whether or not paper should stay in Brussels was was very was still pretty loose at that stage so for instance the early commissioners all regarded their private paper their cabinet's papers as their private property and they went off of it which is why if you want to see the papers of Walter Halstein the first commission president you don't go to Brussels you go to Bonn or actually in, in the Koblenz now um, uh, so to the German Bundesarchiv. Um, likewise, the, the papers of Jenkins' cabinet from which I wrote the, the, the book that I've just written are in All Souls College, Oxford, um, and the Bodleian Library between them. So the, the, his chef de cabinet's papers are in All Souls, his papers are in, 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 in the Bodleian, because there wasn't this attitude that these were official documents and they therefore have to be preserved. And so that, the spread of that, but now, and so you really did have this culture where papers were private property. And I think it's only really as you go into the 1990s and into this, the first years of this century, that a really sort of professionalized if this is an official document, it ought to be preserved and it ought to get to the archives, culture developed. I still remember the archivist when the, when the Berlimor had to be evacuated because they discovered asbestos. I can remember Jocelyne Colonval getting very excited. She was launching what she called Operation Berlimor, which was as people vacated their offices, she was going to try and grab the boxes of previous files that had been left there. Uh, and I don't know how successful Operation Berlimont turned out to be. Perhaps, perhaps it's probably asbestos in those files. But, uh, but, but, but it was a fascinating example of how hand-to-mouth and how ad hoc the whole system was. And it, that's, the, that's the mid-1990s. So I've, I've now been involved with two out of the three volumes. I wasn't involved with the first, although I know virtually everybody who was. Um, 
and perhaps should have listened to them and not got involved in the, <laughs> the next two. But anyway, uh, I did, uh, for my sins, get involved with both the last one and this one. So I've done the whole of the sort of 73 through to 2000 period. I didn't do the 58 to, uh, to, to 72 period. Um, they're, they're quite interesting projects. It must be said there is a tension between the historians who do them and the Commission as to what the point of them are. Most of us are, by training and, I think with some reason, primarily interested in written materials. That's what we are trained to use. That is what instinctively we look to when we try and write history. And so we have regarded these projects as a way of the Commission giving us access to its archives. And it must be said in that respect, the first two volumes were a serious disappointment. It was partly because they covered periods where the archives were already officially open, but it was partly also to do with the way in which the projects were organised. But actually the amount of additional material that was found because of them uh, was relatively limited. Not non-existent, and my discovery, for instance, of where the Crispin Tickell papers were was linked entirely to, that for, to, to my involvement with the Second Commission History Project. So basically, I went and interviewed Tickell and said at the end of the interview, do you have any papers? And he said, oh yes, 27 boxes of them uh, in All Souls Library. And that led me to being given permission to go and see them, and out of that came the book. So we did have something, but in terms of getting stuff in Brussels that I would not otherwise have been able to get, really I saw very little. This project is utterly different because, of course, we're now going into, this project starts in 86, so pretty much on the frontier of the 30-year rule, which, the, which is still the governing principle for the, Commissioner, for the Commission and the European Community EU archives generally. Uh, and it goes through to 2000, which is obviously way within that period. And so virtually all of the stuff that we're being shown this time round uh, is not yet open. And so we are actually being given exclusive uh, access in a way that we never have been before. So that's really beneficial. But So that's what we wanted out of it. But interestingly, the Commission's viewpoint was very different. What they wanted was essentially for the historians to go and talk to, um, talk to previous fonctionnaires. Uh, they wanted an oral history project. I think this was particularly Jacqueline Lastenus, who was very interested in oral history, but she, she felt very strongly that there was a generation of pioneering Eurocrats who were dying out. Those who'd been there at the beginning were, uh, in the 1990s, were sort of the, those around were already very old and they weren't going to be around for very much longer. And, and so the project, from the Commission's perspective, was about preserving their memories. And so there has always, we went into it for the paper, but the Commission engaged us for the oral history. And there's always been this kind of Faustian bargain that we will do the interviews, which actually turned out to be much more useful, actually, as historical sources than I initially expected, and I think that many of my colleagues expected. But we will do that in return for being granted access to the paper. Um, the Faustian bargain has worked best on this project, on this final volume of the Commission history, from my perspective. I'm not going to do another. Um, but uh, but, but than it did for the second one. But I think the oral history has been a surprise. I was a sceptic. I really didn't think oral history was terribly useful because I was very 
gets as much as it is about about the history. Um, in terms of the the what they want out of it, it's difficult to know exactly. Um, I think there is a tension there between our desire to write quite critical history and the Commission's understandable desire to have uh, the rough edges of history smoothed out. Um, and the re they are, most of the volumes are, to my mind, blander than they ought to be. Um, uh, some of the controversials, some of the things that I found really interesting that we discovered last time around, we were not allowed to publish. We don't yet know now. The Commission are currently looking at the first draft of our, the latest volume, but we don't know whether they'll take out all the good bits. But my fear is that they will. But even then, my attitude is in a sense that doesn't matter too much. The official volume will be a little bit bland, but I've learned this stuff. I'm not going to forget it, and I'm going to publish it under my own name somewhere else without an official commission imprimatur. I have to be a bit careful this time round because there are rules about the, the papers that I can use, so I'm going to have to wait until they're open. But I'm still going to use the information, even if the commission didn't want me to use it in the official volume. So, so again, I'm prepared to play this kind of waiting game with it. So I think there is a tension there. <laughs> Then I have a very last conclusive uh, question. Conclusive Provo question? Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, provocative. Uh, now, uh, Theresa May is teaching us that uh, Britain is leaving uh, the Union, not Europe. So, um, and having heard the, the example of the Oasis <coughs> history and archive, and then here the relation Britain and Europe, uh, I think I thought that there would be a kind of popular understanding that the Union would be Europe. But obviously we're now told that uh, the Union is rather uh, the exception, not the real Europe. Well, we have thought that, I would have thought that maybe countries like Switzerland, Norway and some few others would be the exception. But now uh, we're told that it's the other way around. So um, European integration is obviously, as I mentioned before, a very complex uh, story, which has very different facets. We can talk about the Council of Europe talk about OECD and Marshall Plan, we're talking about um, various foundations, hundreds of uh, lobby groups, uh, some of them have in fact members that are not EU members, some do not, so it's a very mixed uh, profile. So from, from your various studies, uh, UASIS is European studies, so European studies is obviously in this sense not EU studies, so it's something more broad. So what is the common ground? <coughs> what is the, uh, what are the differences? Uh, has the Commission or has the EU failed to complete this picture to say Union is Europe? And uh, where will the studies go? <laughs> well, the, the, we could have a whole conference on that. Um, in fact, I'm sure there have been conferences on that. Um, look, I have a very particular perspective because my speciality has tended to be look, looking at the core institutions of the, of the community union itself. So in a sense, I'm bound to have a, a semi-insider's 
insider's viewpoint, and it's perfect. I, I, I'm perfectly prepared to acknowledge the legitimacy of studying other institutions, but that's not what I've done, and therefore I'm bound to have a kind of internal view. There is, though, in, in the history, I don't know so much about the political science, but in the history, there is a very interesting debate going on at the moment about precisely this issue, sparked partly by our mutual friend and colleague, Kiran Patel, with a, a very important article called Provincializing Europe, which was essentially trying to uh, underline the extent to which uh, e the, the, there was not a, 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 an equivalence between um, the early community and Europe, and that there were many facets even of European integration broadly defined, let alone Europe, whatever that might be, that did not fall under the European community structures, etc. The strange thing is, though, that I actually read that same article, and I have a kind of ongoing row with Kiran, an ongoing uh, sort of um, back and forth with Kiran about this. You can read his same evidence to as telling two very different stories. I think he would summarize the article by saying what I've just said, namely that this, that this is a piece intended to show how there were large domains of cooperation that actually were not uh, the domain of European community actions and that whether it was cooperation on postal unions or all sorts of various other things, they kind of coexisted alongside the EC and therefore we should be very careful about adopting any form of sort of equivalence between European integration and European community institutions. The same evidence he's presenting though can actually be read, and I tend to read in a slightly different way, that this is actually the story of gradual EC expansion, absorption of all of these domains. They haven't all been swallowed up, but a large number of them have been. And so while it is undisputably the case that in the 1950s and 1960s, the things that the community Brussels did was relatively limited and a lot of other European cooperative structures existed, uh, the community Brussels has been a sort of, I'm revealing my age here, a sort of Pac-Man monster that has gone around sort of munching up all of the other autonomous bodies until many of them, sort of a few persist, but a, but a large number no longer exist and have been, have been swallowed up. And so I think you can actually see this as kind of a, I don't want to use the word imperialism, but a kind of swallowing up or, or an aggrandizement of the European project, which has made it somewhat more autonomous. So the same evidence can be read in a, so it's glass half empty, glass half, half full sort of really, but if you emphasize the beginning when it was small, well yes, it is true that Europe and European community have not been at all the same. If you focus on the later period, then although the equivalence is not total, there has been a substantial shift in that direction and you could, well, it's dangerous to extrapolate the trend because, of course, we all know recent events and maybe the trend has gone into reverse. But, uh, but that was certainly the pattern of development up until the first years of this century, at least. Okay. Thank you very much, Piers.